Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm not Aaron or Mark. thought I'd state the obvious from the get-go. Um, my name is Sid, uh, and I'm the pastor of community groups here at Hope Community Church. And so I'm glad to be with you. Uh, a lot of my job gets to be caring for community groups and their leaders and their coaches. Uh, but also part of my job is to, to be able to open up the word with you and uh, to talk and discuss um, and share it with you uh, in this setting. So I'm thankful for that. Before I do that and drop us in the middle of uh, a story, an Old Testament story, I wanted to give you some background about how we got here. Uh, Hope has been doing a sermon series, we just started a few weeks ago, on the book of Exodus. Well, really, it's like mostly the book of Exodus. Um, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's uh, in this what's called the Old Testament section of the Bible. And the Exodus also refers to sort of a historical movement. It's a movement of people. It's a spiritual and historical movement of enslaved Israelite people into freedom. They move from Egypt into a territory called Canaan at the time and what is called Israel and Palestine now. In this story, it's an epic story. There are 10 commandments. There are 10 plagues. Uh, there is a Red Sea that parts to dry, and becomes dry land in the middle uh, there's the making of an elaborate and highly sacred temple tent structure for many chapters. And God will um, take all of these things and he will lead this movement of the people uh, and he'll do it through a pillar of smoke during day and a pillar of, of fire at night. And he'll do it through this man named Moses. So who's this Moses guy anyway? What, is, what does Moses and this Exodus movement have to do with our daily lives? These are questions that are at the heart of our sermon series this spring. And this week, we're going to look at chapter four of the book of Exodus, as Kate just read. It's a, it's a new chapter. Uh, we looked at chapter three last week, but it's really a continuation of the back and forth dialogue that Aaron started to unpack for us last week, a back and forth between Moses and God. And you see, uh, Moses, God issued this invitation to Moses to come lead a revolution, right? To deliver his people, the Israelites, out of Egyptian slavery. And Moses responded with some heavy-duty doubts. <laughs> and now in chapter 4, we kind of are still unpacking, looking through Moses' heavy-duty doubts, his self-doubts mostly, and God's calling on his life. And these kind of conditions are... Um, not only continue from chapter three, but they escalate into a tension that brings Moses and us beyond ourselves. And so before we dive any deeper into the story of what happened in the desert 3,200 years ago, and maybe what's happening, what God's up to in our hearts today, I wanna to take some time to pray. Um, so would you pray with me uh, for these words to do their work in our hearts this morning? Father, um, by your spirit, uh, would you meet us? Would you meet us where we are? Um, so many of us are in different places. Um, some of us came here eagerly. Some came reluctantly. Some of us came by ourselves. Some of us were dragged by others. <laughs> um, and I just do pray that you would be with our hearts. Jesus, would you come and run and meet us where we are? But you, would you help us not, don't leave us there. Would you move our hearts? Would you transform our minds? Jesus, would you be high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts 
Would you make the meditations of our hearts and the words that I speak pleasing and acceptable in your sight, a rock and redeemer? Amen. Well, every great story begins with a knock at the door. Well, if we're honest, not just like a single knock, usually more than one knock. The wizard Gandalf waits outside the closed door of Bilbo Baggins, and he does it more than once. Gandalf says, I'm looking for someone to share in the adventure that I'm arranging, and it's very difficult to find anyone. And what does Bilbo say? Good morning. We don't want any adventures here, thank you. <laughs> okay. Peter Pan invites Wendy Darling to come with him into Neverland. And Wendy replies, oh dear, I can't. Think of mummy. Besides, I can't fly. And then after some convincing, she says, of course, it's awfully fascinating. And then, of course, there's the cat in the hat. Shows up unannounced with a bump on a boring rainy day to a boy, his sister Sally, and their pet fish. And he invites them all to lots of good fun that, that is funny, some good games we can play. And, of course, I know some new tricks, a lot of good tricks. I'll show them to you. Your mother won't mind if I do. Sally and the boy hesitate, and their fish positively objects. No, no, make that cat go away. But they don't. And the cat starts the fun and games with up, up with a fish. <laughs> so adventure comes to us into our lives this way, doesn't it? It comes to us with someone we don't know very well, a stranger or nearly a stranger, standing in front of us and knocking inviting us, asking us if he or she can come in, and inviting us into something scary, but also awfully fascinating. But if you're like me and Bilbo Baggins and Wendy Darling and, and the pet goldfish, you and I are not always excited about this moment. In real life, uh, I can lie down on the kitchen floor with the lights off when someone knocks at my door. Just hypothetically, you know, <laughs> never done that. Um, but I, that's not a comment on hospitality or stranger danger. Really, these are stories or sketches of uh, portraits of a personal invitation by someone we don't know well into something more. The calling, someone calling on us is exciting, yes but also makes us feel this kind of fear and shame and a kind of stubborn reluctance, doesn't it? And these feelings are kind of in this setting, begin to get at where Moses is in his setting in Exodus chapter four. God is inviting him on an adventure. It's such an important mission, right? But Moses feels like God's mission to go back to Egypt, to contend with Pharaoh, and to convince a whole people group to, in mass, follow him into the wilderness, this mission feels like a mission impossible. And frankly, Moses feels like anything but a secret agent, ready and trained to do that. And so it's worth noticing that the pattern of this dialogue in the desert, God's call and Moses' response, have a kind of cadence to them that's so honest and so relatable. <laughs> and what's said is also at the same time, awfully fascinating, especially the way that God responds to Moses' big emotions. 
So in a sentence, Exodus 4 is telling us two things. God's calling on our lives makes it okay to be more honest about ourselves. It's okay to be more honest about ourselves. And God's calling on our lives at the same time pushes us beyond ourselves. It's okay to be honest about ourselves, but also the calling pushes us beyond ourselves. And Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17, are this kind of back and forth dialogue in the desert and has three distinct parts to that idea. First, verses 1 through 9, we're going to see them describe our fear of failure and God's power. Then verses 10 through 12 describe our shame about our weaknesses and God's dignifying of them. And then third, we're going to see in verses 13 through 17, God's company for us in our stubbornness. So that's the three points we're looking at. Those verses and those points are in your bulletin. They're also projected probably behind me. Um, And so you could take a look at those things as we start. But we're going to begin with the beginning, and we're going to look at Exodus in the first verses, nine verses, and how God's power speaks to our fears. Look at how it speaks to our fears. I said this earlier, but verse one is actually Moses' third question. It's not his first, not his second, it's his third question. If you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, you might remember that Moses was born an Israelite or Hebrew, but then he was sort of adopted into the Egyptian royal family and raised in the, in the temple, in the, excuse me, the palace. And But Moses was forced to flee for his life from that palace into exile, into the desert in Midian. But then in Midian, he uh, starts tending sheep. And Aaron talked all about that last week, but he's, he's tending sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro. And all of a sudden, he comes upon a bush that burned, but that didn't burn out. And he's drawn in to a scene where God introduces himself and then gives Moses a mission to set his people free, to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and into freedom. But Moses has some concerns, several concerns, in fact. And so he asked God in Exodus chapter 3, who am I to take on the world's most powerful monarch and then lead hundreds of wildly opinionated and very codependent people into the wilderness with no resources. So question one, who am I? And also in Exodus 3, we see the second question. Moses asked, who should I say sent me? That is, who are you talking to me from a shrub on fire? And who is it that is sending me to go do this mission impossible? So who am I? But in the second question, who are you? And how does God answer those questions? I am with you, Moses, and I am who I say I am. That's who. And this is the buildup for Moses' third question in our passage. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Really, it's not really a question. It's more of an objection. (laughs) Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Why does Moses go there? Why why does he assume out of the gate that he's not going to be listened to or believed? It's because he's had some experience, like us all. His experience was 40 years ago, roughly, he was in Egypt, and he tried his hand at playing the rescuer of his people. 
right? He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And I quote, he looked this way and he looked that way. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. And what kind of reception did this act of bravery earn Moses? The next day, Moses, still trying out the superhero routine with the fluttering cape and the big S on his chest, this would-be hero Moses shows up and he tries to settle a Hebrew-on-Hebrew dispute. But then the, the Hebrew who's in the wrong lashes out at Moses. And he says this, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? Yikes. And then what happened? When Moses' adopted grandfather, the Pharaoh, hears about the murder and Moses' sort of sudden interest in the Israelite situation, what happens? When Pharaoh heard of it, he seeks to kill Moses. Double yikes. That gets two yikeses because one's about family. That's a yikes. And the second one's about capital punishment, which I'm not talking about today. It's another yikes. You see, Moses had tried and miserably failed to deliver his people and lead his people in Egypt, let alone out of Egypt, right? And that's why Moses is expressing this fear of failure in verse one. And it's safe to say that everyone in this room can relate to this. We've all experienced failure and it's primed so many fears in our hearts. It's been something you've failed at, right? It's a sport or an art or a subject in school or it's a relationship. Maybe you look back on your life. We all can look back on our lives and we can see our pasts littered with relationship misses and some wreckage, friendships and dating alike. But really to know where the failure is, to know what the fear, where the fear happens, we just kind of have to ask a few questions. Here's a couple questions for us. What kind of invitations to do something will you not even consider? <laughs> what is off the table when someone asks you to do it? You don't even consider to do it. What things do I avoid by scheduling my days and nights to be overly busy? What am I avoiding by my schedule? What feels like the topic that I manage conversations to never address? What's the thing that I'm constantly working in a conversation to never come up so I don't have to talk about it? But I love the honesty of this passage because it gets us to to go there about our fear of failure. Remember, this passage, like the entire book of Exodus, is written by Moses himself. He's writing about his own failure and his own fear of failure. He's confessing these failures to us. And what this confession teaches us is this, God won't waste your failures. God won't waste your failures. We'll see this in the life of Moses as we go on as we study, this, study this, the book of Exodus and beyond. You'll see that Moses' failure back in Egypt the first time makes him a different kind of leader the second time. Moses, as a leader the second time, because of his first failure, he's reluctant to think, I've got this. I've got this. 
He doesn't think that. He doesn't think he can handle any situation thrown at him without God on his own in his own steam. Moses is dependent on God, and that dependency on God, due to his failure, makes Moses a really great leader. I love the way that the counselor, uh, Christian counselor Dan Allender puts it in his book on leadership, Leading with a Wimp. To the degree you face and name and deal with your failures of, as a leader, to that degree, to the same extent, you will create an environment conducive to growing and retaining productive and committed colleagues. But what does God do about Moses' fears? How does he enter into Moses' heart situation about how he'll be received? Moses' desire to please the people around him or to not be, fail in front of them as opposed to please God and what his purposes are for Moses and his people. God promises this. He promises divine power. We see this in the three miracles that God tells Moses to perform. They're not just party tricks, right? They're meant to show God's huge judgment and huge deliverance in miniature form. So we see the rod and the serpent are serpent are symbols of the rod and serpent are symbols of God's power. His authority, that Pharaoh's authority, the rod and the serpent in ancient Egypt, were actually God's authority, not Pharaoh's. He was borrowing it. We see this also with leprosy. There was an incurable and rampant disease of leprosy in Egypt. But God is the only one who can cause it and cure it. And then finally, we see this in what he does with the Nile. The Nile was Egypt's source of all wealth and power. It was food and drink. And this Nile River, he can turn it into death. This life-giving source can be turned into death, blood. And God's going to do this in a bigger form with the first plague against Egypt later in, in our book of Exodus. But I want you to notice also the way that God responds to Moses. So that's the substance, but what's the style that God engages Moses with? Moses has effectively thrown cold water on God's rescue plan. And how does God respond? Verse two, a simple question. What's in your hand, Moses? And then a series of further invitations, verses six, four, six, and seven. Put out your hand. Put your hand inside. Put your hand inside again. What's God up to here? These are gentle, but still firm invitations to more. They're invitations to more. God knows what William Hunt puts so simply. This is how William Hunt puts what God knows about the human heart. The door of the human heart can only be opened from the inside. And so God is knocking at the door. And he's knocking at it more than once. But like Bilbo and Wendy and the fish and the cat in the hat, like all of us about strange and unexpected adventures that we're invited into, Moses does not open the door, at least at first. We can picture Moses crouched low to hide himself. And there he is stuttering through the mailbox in verse 12, or verse 10, excuse me. Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. 
And so it begins our second exchange between Moses and God and between us and God. Our shame about weakness, our weakness, and God's dignifying of that weakness. Moses once again does something surprising if we read it carefully. He's objecting the fourth time he's objecting to God's invitation. That's a lot of times. And God, Moses again is choosing honesty with God. He admits that his weakness and he's admitting the weakness that causes so much shame in his life. Moses has some sort of speech impediment, and we're not exactly sure why. Maybe it has to do with the fact that he grew up speaking Hebrew with the Israelite people in a very simple setting, and all of a sudden, at some age we don't know, he was ripped from that context and put into an Egyptian-speaking, very complicated palace structure, speaking Egyptian. Maybe that has to do with some of the ways that he's hesitant to speak. He's not quite sure what to say or do. We don't know that for sure, but I think it's safe to imagine that when Moses looked back at the moment when he tried to settle that dispute with the two Hebrews who were fighting in Exodus chapter 2, we can imagine that it dogged Moses about the way he spoke that day. He had to wonder that some of the scorn that was directed his way by the man in the wrong, maybe it was because of the way that he spoke. Maybe the man didn't think Moses could be a prince or a judge over the people because he didn't speak like a prince or a judge over the people. He stammered, his tongue gone lifeless, especially when he needed it to be full of life the most. But once again, I want you to notice God's manner with Moses, right? He's gentle and inviting and he begins with a series of questions in verse 11. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God knows. <laughs> he knows all about the human heart. And he knows the door to the human heart only opens outwards. It doesn't open inwards. And so what that means is you can't force the door of the human heart by charging at it. That'll only make your shoulder black and blue. And so God knocks once again with these questions. Questions that get at the truth that Moses confesses, my Lord, but he also struggles to believe. And isn't that our situation? We know the right answers, most of us, right? We know with our heads that Lord can do anything and everything he wishes, but in our hearts we doubt it. <laughs> And we especially doubt it about our weaknesses. The weaknesses that have caused us so much shame. The weaknesses that it feels like despite our best prayers, God still hasn't fixed. Moses' stammer. Paul's thorn in the flesh. My feelings of social shame. From about the age of 10, I got verbally picked on. It was relentless, it was vicious, and I didn't handle it all that well. Sometimes I could make the voice stop by leaving the room or maybe using my fists to retaliate, but when I punched back, it only made the shame worse. But I couldn't make that voice stop inside of my head. I could always hear it. It always made me feel so uncool, so in my head about how I leave every conversation that I have. 
And I've carried this voice with me. And I carried this voice with me into my adult life. And I carried it into my choice of um, job. I didn't start a pastor. I started a teacher. And I started a teacher because I could manage what I said and how I said it for a certain amount of time about a subject that had nothing to do with me. It didn't have anything to do with whether uh, you liked me or not and how we related. But I want you to tell you another truth. God won't let you hide your weaknesses. He won't let you hide your weaknesses. And so I find myself going to graduate school to become a professor and leaving a pastor. I can remember sitting with a few mentors, key mentors in my life, and hearing their gentle invitation. They wanted to know me. They wanted to know more of me. They wanted to know what Jesus was up to in my life and in my heart. And they thought that others might want to know that too. They might want to know me and Jesus in me. And they thought I might have what it takes. Or at least Jesus has what it takes through me. That Jesus could use my social relationships to do his work in the world. And in my weaker moments of ministry, I still kind of make these preemptive jokes about my social shame, uh, my discomfort, my social skills. I'll say something like, I have the spiritual gift of awkwardness, which the Lord blesses the nations with. <laughs> Just get ahead of it. That way you can't complain. I, didn't warn, I don't say I didn't warn you. The other day, someone called me the pastor of community, not the pastor of community groups. I just about stuttered inside. <laughs> How am I supposed to be, me, in charge of people knowing and being known? It feels like so much. Oh, my Lord, I am not a social butterfly, <laughs> either in the past or since you've called me to your ministry, but your servant is never quite sure most people like being around him. But what does God say to the sea of self-doubt? The sea of self-doubt is within all of us. How does God speak to the shame you feel over whatever weakness my story made you think about in your story? Verse 12. Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You see, God is not phased but he also does not just shrug off Moses' concern, nor is there a sports moving training sequence where God makes Moses' weakness into his strength. This is what we expect, right? We expect the, the Museum of Art, Philadelphia Museum of Art, we expect Rocky charging up the steps over and over again and jumping at the top. He's did it. Or we expect the scene with the push-ups in the rain after the big game when we lost, and so we're going to win the next one. That's not what's here in this text. Instead, Alec Mortier describes it this way, how God addresses Moses' shame. He, the Lord, did not undertake to change circumstances or suggest that the task was, after all, easier than it looked. He did not even guarantee immediate success or urge Moses to think positively and not be so defeatist. The call really consists of nothing more than the Lord asking Moses, do you trust me? Will you simply go trusting me? 
Even just this week, I lost a fair amount of sleep thinking about a difficult conversation. And I thought to myself, if I was just more socially able, this wouldn't be a difficult conversation. (laughs) Because of me, this is going to be hard. But you know what? I felt like the Lord might be saying, might be asking, Sid, are you weak enough to be used by God? (laughs) Will you offer your vulnerable self to this person? How about you and whatever keeps you from your rest? God is gently but firmly knocking at the door of your heart. Will you let him use your weakness? Your vulnerable, fallible, wounded self. But how did Moses respond to God's invitation? Moses, do you trust me? Moses, will you you go simply trusting in me? Granted, God's ask was bigger than a difficult conversation. But Moses' reply in verse 13 is still really shocking if we read it. What does he say? Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) So honest. And so we begin our third and final point this morning, our stubborn wills and God's company in that. (laughs) Moses is done asking questions, and he's done with God's mission. In verse 13, he says, I'm out. I am tapping out. (laughs) Find someone else, anyone else but me. This is an act of stubborn willfulness. It's a moment of unbelief. Moses doesn't trust God in this moment. He doesn't trust his power to transform or his ability to give dignity to our inadequacies. And verse 14 tells us the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And we really, if we don't look at the text, we, can safely, we would safely assume that it's going to read like something like this. And then God consumed Moses in a fit of fire, just like the burning bush nearby, except that the fire didn't last all that long. <laughs> okay, we can imagine that. But listen to what the text says. Instead, we read yet another question, another knock on Moses' door. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Then God continues, I know that he, Aaron, can speak well. Behold, he's coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart and you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. Instead of the judgment Moses deserved, God gave him company. A friend and a brother, a substitute and a mouthpiece. God gave Aaron as a gift to Moses. He gave him as a gift to his fear, a gift to his shame, a gift even in his stubbornness. And it's not just that God won't waste your failures. It's not even just that God won't let you hide your weaknesses. A third truth is God is not letting you go it alone. He's not letting you go it alone. But how? How can God give this gift of Aaron to Moses in the very heat of his anger against Moses? The grace is made possible by another infant boy 
who escaped a king's attempt to kill all Israelite infant sons. It's made possible by another man, Jesus, who left his palace, this time in heaven, in a self-imposed exile. But this man, Jesus, was also God, and so he trusted his father. He trusted the mission to set the captives free, to free us, to free us from our stubbornness, to free us from our fears, to free us from our shame, and not just to free us from Egypt. And it's, it is this trust in God that led Jesus on a mission impossible to a cross to be consumed by God's anger against us. This Jesus' obedience and sacrifice delivered Moses, and it will deliver us. All we have to do is receive Jesus and the blessed gift of his company. But God doesn't just give us Jesus' company. He gives us the company of people like Aaron. <laughs> Aaron, who when they see you, they are glad in their heart. God cured our fear and our shame and our stubbornness by taking it all on his shoulders and dying on a cross as our substitute. But God applies this freedom through so many mouthpieces, through people in the present who care about you so deeply. So when they see you deeply, they, like God, will be oh so glad in their hearts about you. For me, it's been this experience that keeps me going in ministry, which is so social, which is so my weakness and not my wheelhouse. It's people who over lunch or coffee lean over and speak God's truth into my life. I'll never forget there was a student that I had when I was a campus minister, and she was one of those students that you love having. She was wildly popular, right? She's capital F fun. Um, she was just one of those people that brought the party every time she was in a room. Uh, she was the kind of person that, whose laugh was contagious, and whatever she was interested in, no matter what it was, it spread through the campus like wildfire. All of a sudden, her entire dorm floor was into mermaid coloring books simply because Julia was into them. <laughs> Which is wild, if you think about it. Anyway, I'll never forget that this student, Julia, kind of pulled me aside. It was her senior year, her last event in this campus ministry. It was summer conference. She pulled me aside after one of our last sessions together. And she said this, you know, Sid, I wish you would stop saying you're socially awkward. That's never been my experience of you. I've only ever felt cared for by you. And I knew in that moment that God was knocking on the door of my heart. And he was saying, Sid, I've never felt awkward around you. And I've only ever cared for you and cared about you and wanted to be with you. Perhaps this morning, at the beginning of the week, the beginning of another month in your life, you too can hear that invitation from God, that knock, a knock again, once again. I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure I'm arranging. Would you come with me? Let's pray. Father, it's scary. 
scary to trust you. Um, you ask such big things from us, and we're so small. But in our fears and in our shame and in our stubbornness, we forget. We forget how big you are and how much you want to be around us. And I pray that the warmth of your affection would start a fire inside of us. And by your spirit, you would move us out. And that we'd be warmed, encouraged, cared for. And Lord, would you help us not to stifle that voice, that invitation that you have for us this morning. I pray that we'd be able to hear it. It's still a small voice that calls us to more. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.